Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Great Hunger in Dublin, The Great Famine, Part 12. This is the first of two episodes which will look at the story of the famine in Ireland's capital city, Dublin. This episode is a bit late. I was in hospital last week and it took a while to get over it, but things are back on track now. Overall, Dublin does not feature heavily in histories of the Great Famine and there's comparatively little written on the city during the 1840s in comparison to the west of Ireland. On one level, this makes sense. The signature mark that spelled the onset of famine elsewhere, the failure of the potato crop, was absent in the capital. In fact, Dubliners were by no means as dependent on the potato when compared to most parts of the country. So its destruction did not mean immediate starvation or trigger the terrifying fears it did in some parts of the island. Furthermore, there's a degree of silence about what was happening in the city in the accounts of visitors who came to Ireland in the late 1840s. They, for the most part, quickly passed through Dublin and commented little on what they saw, further giving the impression the city was not affected. Now, this trend has continued right up to the present day. Narratives continue to focus on the west of Ireland, and there is a popular notion, in Ireland at least, that Dublin was somehow not really affected. There are some statistics that appear to support this idea. The population of the city actually increased during the Great Famine from 232,000 to 258,000. However, while it did not endure the horrors places like Skibbereen did, Dublin was by no means immune. Its population may have increased, but this masks huge upheaval and suffering. Like most of Ireland during Black 47, the famine which was tearing rural society apart took a severe toll in Dublin. The capital was hit by the economic collapse triggered by the famine, given its role as a major port and market, while the impact of suffering elsewhere drove thousands of rural migrants into the city, putting Dublin under even further strain. 
Now before we get into this story, I should say that large parts of this podcast is based on the work of Cormac O'Grother, who has written the most incisive material on the famine in the capital. To begin the story though of the famine in Dublin, we meet one family of rural migrants who settled very close to where I live in the capital. But the last thing I want to do before we get into the show is give a shout out to patrons without whose support this series would not be possible. So thanks to Colette Bleakley, Erica Lauren, Michelle René, Richard Moore, Tarabu, Doug Fetterman, Patrick McKee, Michael O'Dwyer, David T. Leopold, James Arbaugh and Joshua McCann. John and Ellen Mulhern left their home in Leitrim in early 1846, presumably walking the 150 or so miles to Dublin. While they were fleeing famine and starvation back home, what their ultimate goal in travelling to the capital was remains unclear. Perhaps they, like so many others, hoped to eventually emigrate with their four children, or maybe the city itself, with its increased prospects of employment, was their ultimate destination. One way or another, a year and a half later, in 1847, they were still in the city. Nothing is known about their first few months in Dublin, but by the late summer of 1846, they were living in a house on Hendrick Street in the parish of St. Paul's. St. Paul's in the mid-19th century was the most westerly parish on the north side of Victorian Dublin, running along the River Liffey between the famous Jemison Distillery on Smithfield Square and the largest British army barracks in the city, the Royal Barracks, known as Collins Barracks today. For the Mulherns coming from Dublin, city life was different to say the least. First and foremost, Dublin was a densely crowded place. St Paul's Parish covered little more than 1.5 square kilometres, but there were around 10,000 people living in the area, and it was by no means the most densely populated corner of the city. Across the River Liffey, which cuts Dublin in two, 15,000 people were living in less than a square kilometre around the castle. Unsurprisingly, the densely crowded streets and houses were filthy. The notorious tenements of Dublin, where dozens lived in every building, were well established. However, while it may have been dirty, the city had its advantages for the Mulherns. While the couple already had four children, if Ellen Mulhern fell pregnant again, she would be able to use the lying-in hospital at 25 Iron Quay, which was just around the corner from Hendrick Street. Maternity care in the 19th century was at times lethal, but the hospital would have provided Ellen with better conditions than the house she was living in at the time. A newborn baby would surely have struggled to survive there. By early 1847, the Mulherns were living at number 6 Hendrick Street, where ostensibly at least there was little sign of the Great Famine. The blackened, blighted potato fields and huge numbers of people employed on government public work schemes which they had left behind in Leitrim, were nowhere to be seen. In fact, Hendrick Street, by 1847, must have looked pretty normal as streets went. Along with several family homes, there were numerous businesses. Flanking either side of number six, where the Mulherns lived, was a corn merchant and a print works. At one end of the street, a milliner operated a hat-making enterprise beside a coal merchant and a Methodist church. If anything, the street had a respectable hue to it. The polling station for municipal elections in the district was also located on Hendrick Street. However, behind the door of number six where the Mulherns found themselves by early 1847, the absolutely shocking conditions, 
there were comparable to those you would find anywhere on the island. The conditions in the house, then already over 100 years old, was clear evidence that the tentacles of famine had worked their way inside the city. While it may have been surrounded by family homes and businesses, number 6 Hendrick Street was one of the notorious Dublin tenements, once a family home but had been rented out to several families each living in just one or two rooms. While there's no record of who lived in the tenement beside the Mulhearns in 1847, the census of 1911 gives us some sense of what it would have been like. In the early 20th century there were seven families and a total of 22 people living in the building. That was the house itself. In 1847, the Mulhearns did not have the luxury or the resources to live in the main building. Having arrived in the city fleeing famine, they were destitute and lived in truly shocking conditions. They struggled to survive in a hut in the backyard. This hut was described in the following terms. It was one of the most frightful habitations, if it could be called such a name. There was not a particle of furniture in it save an old cracked table. A person could not stand upright in it and the walls were quite wet and covered with filth. By the winter of 1847, one eyewitness reported the floor was composed of soft mud at least two inches deep. These conditions were abominable even by the standards of the time. However, in spite of this, John and Ellen Mulhern may well have thought it was still the correct decision to move to Dublin because, when he could find work, John Mulhern was far better paid in Dublin than he was at home in Leitrim. The 15 pence a day he could earn in the city was substantially more than the public work schemes offered back in the west of Ireland. But that was when he could find work. By the winter of 1847, getting a job of any kind was increasingly difficult for John and life in the hut where the Mulhearns lived was dangerously difficult. In February 1847, John did secure work from a Mr Brian in Cabra, then a rural parish situated a mile or so north of Hendrick Street. However, when he turned up, the frost and snow prevented him working. One can only wonder what conditions in the hut must have been like for the family if it was even too cold to work. In a demonstration of decency, this Mr Bryan forwarded John Mulhern four shillings and while the family did receive further aid from the local parish relief committee, it was scarcely enough to keep them going in a time of soaring food prices. By the second week of February, John and Ellen were eating next to nothing, giving what little sustenance they had to their four children. As the week progressed, the two parents were seriously ill and living in a hut lying in two inches of mud. Unsurprisingly, their condition only deteriorated. On Saturday, February the 13th, having not eaten for several days, John Mulhern died in the hut at the back of number 6 Hendrick Street, surrounded by the hustle and bustle of city life, with his children looking on. Then, the following day, his wife, Ellen Mulhern, died. Both were later described as looking about 60, even though they were not yet 40. In a post-mortem, it was revealed that there was no food in Ellen Mulhern's entire digestive system, while John did have a small meal but little else in the previous days. There was no evidence of disease. The two had died from what was said to be extreme poverty, destitution and a general want of all the necessities of life. Interestingly, coverage of the incident in the main newspaper of the day, the Freeman's Journal, neglected to mention the owners of the tenement where they lived. The landlord at 6 Hendrick Street was Charles Warren, a prominent Catholic in the parish of St Paul's and almost certainly a member of the respected Warren family, notable printers in the city. Whether his connections had kept him out of the press is not clear. 
Overall, though, most in Dublin were stunned by these deaths. The very fact that the Mulhern's deaths in early 1847 shocked the city, and also that it was reportedly the first of its kind in the capital, did reveal the nature of the famine in Dublin. It was by no means as severe as elsewhere in Ireland. Had John and Ellen Mulhern perished in somewhere like Skibbereen, their passing would have scarcely raised an eyebrow by February 1847, when similar deaths were occurring at the rate of dozens each week. However, that said, while the famine may not have been as extreme as it was in the West, Dublin did not escape by any means, and the plight of John and Ellen Mulhern was indicative of the pressures growing in the city. While Dublin had long been an impoverished city, after famine struck, Thousands like the Mulherns from across rural Ireland flooded into the city, some in the hope of finding food, some hoping to emigrate. These people put the city under great strain and exacerbated the economic crisis in Dublin, then developing as the famine was destroying the wider economy. While deaths from destitution like that of the Mulherns was far less common than they were in rural Ireland, suffering unquestionably increased. This was something the orphaned Mulhern children we're about to become intimately acquainted with. But first, we need to take a quick break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish History. When Ellen and John Mulhern died, they left four children behind them. These were an unnamed boy of 14 and three girls, Mary aged 10, Catherine aged 6 and an infant, Rose, only 18 months old. While life had been hard before their parents had died for these children, they now faced new risks and dangers. They had absolutely no prospect of earning enough money to feed themselves. The eldest, the boy of 14, vanished from the historical record after his parents died, leaving his three sisters with few options if they wanted to survive. Realistically, they had only one place to turn. Eight days after John and Ellen died, the three sisters walked the short distance to what was the last resort for the truly desperate, the North Dublin Union Workhouse. Built to provide for those with no alternative, the workhouses in Dublin were increasingly overwhelmed by early 1847 as the city was filling up with famine refugees from rural Ireland. As the three Mulhern sisters approached the building in 1847, they must have been wary of this harsh, unforgiving institution. It was only a stone's throw from the female prison in Grange Gorman and the two buildings were ideal neighbours. Everyone inside the workhouse was referred to as an inmate and they were subjected to a harsh regime. However, by early 1847, every day several people were seeking admission as inside the workhouse they would at least receive food. On February the 22nd, when the three sisters were admitted, they were joined by 15 others. The others ranged in age from a seven-day-old baby to a man of 60. These people were a cross-section of those being hit hardest by the famine in Dublin. While the North the Dublin Union was designed to cater for people from the north side of the city, by February 1847, many people who had been born elsewhere found themselves destitute and in need of this workhouse's aid. While the three Mulherns had come from Leitrim, others entering the workhouse had originally come from Mayo, Cavan, Longford, Wardford, Wexford and Galway. All in all, only nine of the 18 had been born in Dublin, a substantial decrease from pre-famine numbers. While the Mulherns were the only orphans, the snippets of information recorded about the others hint at similar stories of destitution. Mary Kavanagh was a 23-year-old woman who brought her seven-day-old baby, also called Mary, to the workhouse, leaving her husband John and another child at home at Ormond Market, a warren of streets on the quays in the city. Perhaps Mary was willing to risk exposing her child to the diseases rampant in the workhouse because she knew, at least there, she could get some food. While life had been extremely harsh on the Mulhern sisters while they lived on Hendrick Street with their parents, the workhouse brought them a whole new set of problems. Indeed here they would see some of the worst evidence of famine in the city. Mortality rates in the workhouse during the famine were high and the three girls were in the most vulnerable category. Analysis from workhouse records shows those who were most likely to die were females and infants. Rose Mulhern, then only 18 months old, was the most susceptible of all. Furthermore, having lost her parents eight days earlier, she now suffered the trauma of being separated from her two sisters once they entered the building. Mary and Catherine Mulhern were sent to the quarters for young girls, distinct from the quarters for women. However, Rose would have been looked after in a special part of the workhouse for infants, separated from the only people she knew. While life in the workhouse was never easy, the North Dublin Union workhouse, like most across Ireland, was dangerously overcrowded by February 1847. 
One of the largest of these institutions on the island, it was designed to hold 2,000 people, but by early February, 2,470 people had taken refuge inside. A fortnight later, just before the Mulherns arrived, this figure had swelled to 2,614, and by March the figure had exceeded 2,750. The number of deaths was on the increase as well. Between 24 to 29 people were dying each week when the sisters entered the complex in February, but this increased rapidly. By April, 40 were dying each week. The reasons for this was presumably what was referred to as famine fever, which had appeared in Dublin in 1846, but was described as prevalent by February 1847. The overcrowded conditions in the workhouse were ideal for the spread of what was called famine fever. Despite that name, famine fever, the diseases were actually typhus and relapsing fever and were not caused by the famine itself, but instead the conditions that developed in its wake. When the girls arrived at the workhouse, they, like many others, were described as ragged and dirty. And this, along with the fact that people shared beds and there was a general lack of hygiene inside the building, created an ideal breeding ground for lice which spread these diseases. To make matters worse, the workhouse authorities, through well-meaning sympathy or incompetence, admitted people who posed risks to others inside the walls. One woman who entered the workhouse on the same day as the three Mulhern sisters, the 60-year-old Bridget McAllister, was suffering from bronchitis. Unsurprisingly, she survived less than three weeks before she died on March 10, 1847, but she may well have already infected others. This woman, Bridget McAllister, was only the first of those who entered the workhouse with the Mulhern sisters on February the 22nd to die. In total, four of the 18 who entered that day never left. Mary Kavna, the mother who had brought her newborn child into the workhouse, lost her baby on March the 26th, 1847. Three days later, Mary left the workhouse, presumably to return home with the bad news. While child mortality was high in the 19th century, the increase in deadly diseases in the workhouse took its toll on vulnerable young children. Indeed, by this stage, anyone who had any dealings with the workhouse was at risk. Half the staff contracted famine fever and half those infected perished. Perhaps somewhat miraculously, all three Mulhern sisters appear to have survived the terrible year of 1847 in the North Dublin Union. The fate of the six-year-old Catherine is somewhat uncertain. She left the building in August that year, leaving her two sisters, Mary and Rose, behind. However, famine stories rarely have happy endings and there is still time for another act in the tragedy of the Mulhern family. On April 17, 1848, Rose Mulhern, then two and a half years of age and still in the workhouse, died. A few weeks later, the oldest of the three sisters, the 11-year-old Mary, died on May 11th. The two girls were most likely victims of the cholera epidemic then sweeping through Dublin. Their fate was just one component of a continuous cycle of death sweeping through Dublin at the time. While the Mulhern family's tragic experience was a far more common occurrence in rural Ireland than it was in Dublin, and at that one perhaps more likely to be endured by rural immigrants to the city, native Dubliners were not immune. As they too were impoverished during the famine, many had little option other than to go to the workhouse. The number of Dubliners who died in the North Dublin Union workhouse increased from 186 in 1845 to 632 in 1847. Outside the workhouse, the lives of ordinary Dubliners also grew increasingly difficult, particularly in 1847. 
While the conditions were not as severe as other parts of the island, doctors in Dublin commented on the fact that people were still suffering from the effects of starvation. They noticed people were developing the condition of scurvy. While this may be surprising given it's normally associated with sailors who have no access to fresh food, it is actually a common result of famine as it develops as a result of vitamin deficiency. Recent analysis of nearly 1,000 famine-era bodies from the Kilkenny workhouse revealed high numbers of those admitted there had developed the condition, so it's a little surprise that it would have been common in Dublin. There are other indicators, though, that the city population was malnourished. In 1847, there was a steep decline in baptisms in many parishes in the city. A decline in baptisms mirrors a decline in births. Children were baptised within days of being born in the 19th century. The historian Cormac O'Grada has suggested that this may be as a result of declining fertility due to hunger. The greatest impact, though, during the early years of the famine in the capital was probably the outbreak of the diseases typhus and relapsing fever. Both were rampant at the time and labelled under a general term famine fever. While the overcrowded workhouses were an ideal breeding ground for lice, which in turn spread the illnesses, the city streets and homes of the poor were not much better. The parishes in the city centre were heaving with people, many of whom lived in overcrowded tenements. So unsurprisingly, these dreaded diseases gained pace through the early months of 1847. By late May, the situation was incredibly serious. The Freeman's Journal reported on one doctor's testimony before one of the city relief committees, which looked after the south side of Dublin. Fever was exceedingly rife and rapidly on the increase. He knew where there were 20 fever cases for which there was no accommodation and about four days ago he met a woman who had been 10 days in fever staggering about the streets with a child. A motion was passed at the committee to erect what were called fever sheds. Undesirable as a shed may sound, there were worse places to be cared for. A certain Dr Kennedy described conditions in fever tents. The patients under my care were placed in tents with boarded floors, but no fireplaces. A later investigation, printed in the Dublin Journal of Medical Science, provides us with great detail about what life was like in the city during the epidemic. Overall, it was estimated that at least 40,000 Dubliners fell ill. This means that about one in every six people contracted one of the diseases. The hospitals were totally overwhelmed. Again, the report from the Dublin Journal of Medical Science gives us this detail. The hospital accommodation in the city amounted to 2,500 beds, a greater amount by 1,000 than were opened in any previous epidemic. It may give some idea of the vast amount of sickness to state that nearly 12,000 cases applied during a period of about 10 months. Even in spite of the extra room in the fever hospital located on Cork Street, the doctors who later provided testimonies admitted they were so crowded that some patients had to wait for others to die before they could get a bed. That said, the turnover in beds was disturbingly high. The overall death rate in the Cork Street Hospital was 1 in 12, but in the month of March it was far higher, with a mortality rate coming in at 1 in 8. Further to those accounted for in the hospitals, doctors at the time observed that many remained at home for one reason or another. While it reached its greatest extent in June 1847, famine fever continued to rage in Dublin into 1848. Whether at home or even in hospital, the medical treatment available to Dubliners during the famine was limited, often ineffectual and sometimes just bizarre. Everything from mercury to opium was doled out. One doctor commented, Wine was freely given. In some cases of local congestion, the application of a few leeches or the abstraction of blood by cupping glasses was found beneficial. 
Mercury was given to relieve constipation, but this was lethal itself over a long period of time. Sometimes it was combined with a substance called Dover's powders, which was a mixture of, among other things, opium, which, according to doctors, at the time was given to relieve vomiting. The medical profession, nor anyone else for that matter, understood the diseases then ravaging the city. Modern medical ideas based on bacteria and viruses were still only being developed. Most medical understanding was still based on what were medieval ideas. One doctor in Offaly attributed an outbreak of disease in November 1848 to the Aurora Borealis, which he claimed had shone with great brilliancy over the entire district. Even the highly respected Dr. Robert Graves postulated the outbreak was due to changes in the atmosphere. Unsurprisingly, in the face of this lack of understanding, people and even officials lashed out. The Health Committee in the parish of St. Paul's, where the Mulhearns had lived, led a moral outcry against prostitutes in the area. The presence of the Royal Barracks at the western end of the parish had always drawn large numbers of prostitutes to St. Paul's, but in the summer of 1847 they were the focus of a sustained campaign. In July 1847, the Officer of Public Health in St. Paul's Parish wrote to the Freeman's Journal complaining about soldiers from the barracks frequenting brothels, claiming this posed a grave threat of contagion. They cited one case where 68 women were working in a brothel on Flood Street and several had been infected with fever and some had died. While sexual intercourse with an infected person would almost certainly lead to catching the fever, the campaign against prostitutes in the parish ultimately achieved little. Indeed, had the authorities forced every prostitute from the entire city, this would have had a negligible effect. The overcrowded workhouses, prisons and city neighbourhoods themselves provided ideal conditions for lice, the vector of the disease in any case. For the final segment in this podcast, I'm going to stay on the story of prostitution during the Great Famine because it is indicative of the growing desperation in Dublin in the late 1840s. While prostitutes lived on the periphery of Victorian society, the Westmoreland Lock Hospital was one place where we can gain some insight into the numbers working in the city. The hospital was located on Townsend Street, close to Trinity College, and catered exclusively to women suffering from sexually transmitted diseases, and by the mid-19th century, the vast majority of patients in the hospital, then known as the Lock, were prostitutes. A study of admissions to the Lock, carried out by Cormac O'Grother, gives us a reasonable insight into the number of prostitutes working in the city. Between 1842 and 1847, the lock had been taking in an average of 744 women each year, but in the later years of the famine, this increased dramatically. In 1850, for example, there were 1,128 admissions, indicating that there was a substantial increase in women engaged in prostitution in the city. There was also a noticeable change in the background of the women. They were increasingly rural immigrants into Dublin rather than native Dublin women. In the early 1840s, over 70% of all women in the lock had been from Dublin. However, during the famine, the numbers from rural Ireland being admitted steadily increased until it was rural immigrants who accounted for 70% of patients. This suggests increasing numbers of impoverished women fleeing the famine elsewhere in Ireland were turning to prostitution in the capital. A similar trend is hinted at elsewhere. In 1847, Colonel Moore of Newbridge Barracks said the garrison there was, and I quote, infested with prostitutes, who apparently even climbed over the walls of the barracks. This increase in the number of prostitutes working in the city during the famine presumably made life increasingly difficult for women who had been working in prostitution prior to 1845. 
There's no data I could find on how much they earned, but as the overall number of prostitutes increased in a dramatically short period of time, the money any individual woman could make must presumably have decreased, a process which can only have served to increase poverty in the city. These stories, whether it be the Mulhern family or the story of city prostitutes, are fragments of the overall picture of the famine in Dublin. But before I conclude, it is important to put these accounts in context. While individual stories, particularly that of the Mulhern family, are really tragic, they run the risk of making the famine seem equally bad all over the island. That's definitely not the case in Dublin. What was happening in the capital was not as severe, as I've said, when we compare it to what was taking place in parts of the west of Ireland. Statistics bear this out. The overall death rate in the city was lower than elsewhere. A more perverse barometer of this misery, though, is probably funerals. In April 1847, Reverend John East, a rector from Bath, visited Ireland. He initially passed through Dublin and experienced conditions in the city before heading on to the southwest, where famine conditions were truly dire. In an account of his journey called A Glimpse of Ireland, the following words were written about Bearhaven, a fishing port on the Berwick Peninsula in West Cork. He compared a funeral he saw there to one he had encountered in Dublin. I had just before from a window witnessed a Roman Catholic funeral. It was performed in silence. There was no service but the small company of relatives to pray for the soul of the departed. In other times, hundreds would attend every funeral. And in Dublin, I saw amazing funeral processions. But in the South and West, they have become almost indifferent upon the subject and think no more of the departed if they may see but a little earth laid over the uncoffined body. For me, this account symbolises a key difference. Death and suffering have become so commonplace and overwhelming in some parts of the southwest that the famine had become all-consuming and day-to-day life more or less ceased to function. However, in Dublin we can say that while people were suffering, they were able to maintain some degree of normality. This doesn't in any way denigrate the experience of those inside the North Dublin Union workhouse, the tenements of the city neighbourhoods or the hut on Hendrick Street where the Mulhern family lived and died but such cases were by no means as extensive or as widespread as they were in the southwest. In the next episode, I will look at more aspects of the famine in Dublin and I'll finally get around to the story of soup kitchens, a major shift in British policy in early 1847. Then, in the following show, we will head north to Ulster to look at another region often forgotten in the story of the Great Famine. Until then, Sloan, and don't forget you can get your copy of that audiobook now at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.